0: Welcome to the GMAT Strategy Podcast. You're here because you believe there's a better way to study for the GMAT, and so do I. I created the GMAT Strategy to maximize your results and minimize your efforts so you can get to the fun parts about business school and life as quickly as possible. My name is Isaac Puglia and I've been teaching GMAT classes and tutoring privately for the GMAT for over six years and I personally have achieved a 99th percentile score on an official GMAT exam and helped hundreds of students get into the business schools of their choice. I'm excited to be a part of your MBA journey since I think the world can benefit from the best possible business leaders that we can find and if this show is bringing you value, please share it with your friends and family who are studying for the GMAT so that together we can make this process as easy and painless for as many people as we possibly can. Let's go. Let's do some more GMAT problems together. Problem number seven in the 11th edition of the official guide is a, actually has a figure attached to it. So I'm gonna describe the figure and then tell you what the problem says and then I'd recommend you attempt the problem on your own and then if you have the capacity to do good scratch work always do that have a notebook with you or some type of paper and pen or something like that so you're building good habits and then unpause the episode and we'll go through a quick explanation and a couple key strategic takeaways for problems like this in the future so the problem starts with a coordinate plane drawn out and they have hash marks on the y-axis. And you can see that there's a parabola that crosses the y-axis at zero comma three. So it's it's hitting the y-axis at three units above the x-axis. And then the problem states in this graph, when x equals one half, y is equal to two. And when x is equal to one, y is equal to one. The graph is symmetrical with respect to the vertical line at x equals two. According to the graph, when x equals three, y should be equal to what? So to describe the figure for you, it's a parabola where the vertex of the parabola is to the right of the y axis, and as the parabola stretches up to the left, it crosses the y axis at 0 comma three. And as it stretches up to the right, we're trying to figure out what is the y-coordinate where x is at 3. So this idea that the parabola is is symmetrical about the line x equals 2 is really the key to this problem. And they tell us straight up that when x is equal to 1, y is equal to 1. And then you see the parabola drop down and it touches the x-axis at x equals 2. So then if you go 1 to the right, that should be exactly the same y-coordinate as we were when we were at x equals 1. And so the answer is going to be 1. Now, admittedly, these coordinate plane questions and geometry questions are going to be a little difficult to do on the podcast. So I may end up skipping over them. Just shoot me a quick note and let me know if describing the figure is annoying or just not that useful so I can save us all a little bit of time. But I, I do want to give you kind of an interesting tip. That I don't see in in any books and that'll hopefully help you out a lot on these uh, coordinate plane style questions and uh, If you watch the video explanation, you can feel free to check that out if you want to see a visual. Sal draws it in the video. I've got the link to the actual video I'm going through In the description of this podcast so feel free to click over there if you want a little visual Um, The key with these types of coordinate plane questions in my mind is Make sure that you always take the time to write in the coordinate points next to any points you're drawing on the graph. And you'll actually see Sal do this. He does a really good job of this while he's going through the answer explanation. When the question says, when x equals one half, y is equal to two, he actually puts the little point on his graph at x, x one half, y equal to two. And then he after he puts that point, he writes next to the point in brackets one half, comma, two. He writes in that coordinate point. That's what I would strongly recommend doing on all your coordinate plane questions. It seems like a really small tip because it is. It only takes like a couple seconds, honestly, sometimes less. But that should drastically cut down on the number of uh, unforced errors that you make on coordinate plane questions. And believe it or not, it really often helps solve the question for you because perhaps, obviously, geometry questions are just super, super visual for most of us. And if you have the right data in front of you, it's going to help a ton. Uh, If you need help with geometry, then definitely the Manhattan Prep Strategy Guide, I think, is really good. Most reputable digital classes will teach you all the geometry content that you want to know. And, of course, any in-person class that you feel that you resonate with uh, or or digital live online class that you resonate with is going to do a really good job of teaching you all the fundamentals of geometry or reteaching you, perhaps more accurately, reteaching you the fundamentals of geometry and giving you an opportunity to practice those a lot. Um, if you'd like to take a live class with me or another really awesome 99th percentile instructor at uh, Test Crackers, just click the link in the description of this podcast and go to testcrackers.org, and you can use the code TGS for $100 off any GMAT uh, quant, any GRE quant, GMAT verbal, or GRE verbal class. And uh, we tend to teach with a lot more humor and a much less... Uh, judgmental atmosphere and approach versus other big companies so if that's something that sounds exciting to you and you're not necessarily vibing with the sort of um, more I don't know sterile or formalized environment of some other providers then uh, you might really enjoy our classes if if you really like that super intense vibe in your class where everybody's competing with each other a test cracker is probably not a fit for you Um, and you know nothing but respect for that um, but it's, it's not that our classes aren't rigorous. They really are. We just try to um, focus the, the intensity of the class on the material and the problems that we're doing together and uh, keep things lighthearted otherwise. Moving on to problem solving number eight. I'm just going to read this one to you. There's no graph here. When one-tenth percent of 5,000 is subtracted from one-tenth of 5,000, The difference is, and go ahead and pause and try that one out. So you've got a couple options when you see these percent translation questions like this. Sal ends up going a pretty typical route with his explanation of the video, which is converting everything into decimals. And I actually do not recommend doing that. I recommend, particularly for people who struggle with this type of question, to use fractions when you're doing percentages, for two reasons. First, there's no calculator, so you can often cross-cancel things with your fraction. That's not always obvious to cross-cancel with your decimal, and by cross-canceling, I mean canceling things in a numerator or a denominator when you're multiplying. And then also, the wording, the initial wording of this question, one-tenth percent, often throws people off with the time pressure of the exam and they just end up having the wrong decimal places. And at the end of the day, really what this question is about is getting the right number of decimal places. So I think one thing that'll help you with that is I would write one tenth, 1 over 10, a fraction, and then write another fraction underneath that over 100. That's the percent part. And then, if I want to, I can start converting that double-decker fraction around if I want to. Now, some of you might think that's overkill. Hey, if you're already having tons of success and you're not struggling with this type of question at all by using decimals, great. Don't change what you're doing. But if you want a tip that I think can make a difference for you, try that out. Um, Also, perhaps obviously, I mentioned this at the top of the episode, but clear scratch work is just going to be insanely important in a question like this because... Most of you are going to know the mathematics behind this if you can get the question set up the right way. The main risk that people have with questions like this is they think, oh, this one's not too hard, this one's easy, and so they kind of slack on their scratch work approach, and uh, that's a great way to miss an otherwise relatively doable question like this one. Um, So the real solution becomes one-tenth of, uh, sorry, one-tenth percent of 5,000 so a good way to think about this is in any fraction, if you're dividing by something, that's the same as multiplying by the reciprocal. So I'd take that one-tenth over 100 and do, turn it into one over 10 times one over 100. And then I would just write times 5,000 over one. And then that's gonna allow me to cancel all three decimals. Uh, sorry, all three zeros in the numerator and all three zeros in the denominator, and that just becomes five. And yeah, that's probably more labor-intensive and maybe slightly slower than uh, than a decimal approach, but I think you'll find that it's much less error-prone, like I said. So just know thyself, know what your strengths and weaknesses are, and use an approach that caters to those. Uh, for the other one, it's one-tenth of 5,000, I'd do exactly the same thing, right? One over ten, and then 5,000 over one, there we can cancel just one zero. Uh, So we wind up with 500, and then we're looking for the difference of those two numbers. So that's going to be 500 minus 5, and the correct answer is 495. Last question of the day here is problem solving number 9 from the 11th edition of the official guide. It reads, which of the following is the value of the square root of the cube root of 0.000064? So the question is, what's the square root of the cube root of decimal point, four zeros, and then six four at the end of those four zeros? So go ahead and pause, see if you can figure this one out. Um, everything I said about scratch work still applies in a question like this, but at the end of the day, this is really a very content-focused question, and I think if you understand the way cube roots and square roots and decimals interact, then you're very likely to get this one right, and if you don't know that, then this question is going to be a huge struggle. So, the content behind it that I found the the most helpful to memorize is, uh, first, just recognizing that there's six total places after the decimal, including the six and the four and the four zeros, and just remember that a square root We'll cut the number of decimal places in a decimal number in half. So if we were square square rooting this first, which we're not, just coincidentally, but if we were square rooting this first, there are six decimal places, the resulting number would wind up with three decimal places. So remember that if you're square rooting a decimal, that's going to cut the number of decimal places in half. If you're cube rooting a decimal, that's going to cut the number of decimal places by one third. It's going to cut the number of decimal places by one third. So here what's going to end up happening is we're going to take the cube root of this decimal first so that means that the result of that operation will have two decimal places and then we need to know what the cube root of 64 is Um, so I would recommend memorizing some of the simple cubes. I'd recommend uh, memorizing two-cubed, three-cubed, four-cubed, and five-cubed. After that, I, I really just haven't seen any other per- perfect cubes come up with any regularity on the GMAT, although correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but you know maybe the cube root of six or something like that has shown up on a GMAT somewhere, but I've never seen it, certainly not with any regularity, but the other ones for sure. Um, Just a quick side note, you'll probably also benefit from memorizing all your perfect squares from 1 to 20. So a lot of us are going to have those first 12 down pretty easily, but you'll also want to know 13 squared, 16 squared, 18 squared, just off the top of your head like that, which uh, most regular adults, they're not walking around thinking about that. So it might require a little bit of memorization. That's probably going to be totally, totally worth it. So cube root of 64 is going to be 4. I would definitely recommend memorizing that prior to the exam so that you're not sitting there trying to think about what is the cube root of 64, just have that automatic ready to go. And so when we do this first cube root calculation here, we'll wind up with 0.04. 0.04 will be the result. Now we need the square root of 0.04, so we're going to cut the number of decimal places in half. So we had two decimal places, that's going to go down to one. And then the square root of four is two, so the correct answer is 0.2. I hope this helps you out. Uh, let me know if you have any questions. As always, you can find me at the GMAT Strategy on Instagram. You can find me at the GMAT Strategy, sorry, slash the GMAT Strategy on Reddit and slash the GMAT Strategy on Facebook. And as always, my greatest hope is that this information will make your studies as easy and as painless as they can possibly be. And uh, I haven't gotten any feedback from you on whether the, uh, going through the problems is particularly helpful. Um, Everyone who is typically downloading the episode seems to be downloading these past couple episodes, so I'll take that as a good sign. Uh, So if you are enjoying this, there's no no need to reach out, but if you have any recommendations or suggestions or requests, let me know um, with the caveat that I'm not going to be going over any current official guide problems just uh, for a couple different reasons, but mostly legal. Uh, If you would like more tips and strategies for optimizing your performance on the GMAT, just head to my website thegmatstrategy.com and check out my free video on how to achieve your goal score in half the normal time and with half the normal effort. And I've gotten a few questions the past few weeks asking me, like, what is the GMAT Strategy video class? Like, how is that different from the podcast? And the best way I can sum up what the GMAT Strategy class is, is it has uh, sort of two things that it's going to teach you over the course of several Um, well, I guess there's like maybe 30 super short video lessons. They're all pretty punchy. It adds up to about three hours of total instruction. And the first thing is to optimize your test taking strategy for test day. And that's gonna help you with the half the effort piece. That's really like a huge, huge key there. That's stuff that in the video I go into detail and I tell you that I, I didn't know any of that when I was originally studying back in the day and I just had a terrible time raising my score. I studied for six months and my score just went down by 30 points. It was terrible. Um, and as soon as I started to learn all the stuff that I teach you at that, in that segment in the class, everything clicked and my score went up by like 80 points and it was awesome. Um, the second intent of the GMAT strategy video class is to optimize your study. So to make sure that you're not overstudying um, and that's cutting the, the half the time piece. So making sure you're using the right study methods. And if you're the type of person who's been studying for six months and your score hasn't moved or your score has gone down, or you're the type of person who's, been, who's done every official guide question for, for verbal and you haven't seen your score move or your score's just not as high as you would like, then I teach you the uh, the unique review strategies and study strategies that I share with people who take my in-person classes and do private tutoring with me that I've had just tremendous, tremendous success with with people over the years. And it's not guaranteed to work, but there is a money-back guarantee on the class. So if it doesn't end up working for you or you're not happy with the class, just let me know. And uh, I'll be happy to refund your money because I just don't feel that I re- deserve your money unless I can help you actually get a better score and achieve it with less effort and less time than you normally would. So hopefully that helps you out if you're like, what on earth is this class? So I'm not teaching you uh, content stuff like here's, you know, the surface area of cube and here's, you know... Um, how to do quadratics, questions, and how to factor those. I touch on that a tiny bit in the class, but it's mostly these strategic cues that I've been giving you problem by problem in the last few weeks. Things like making sure you're always writing down your coordinate points on a coordinate plane question. Um, things like how to you know make sure you're reading word problems the right way so you're not making mistakes, things like that. And in the podcast, I'm teaching you maybe like 10 to 50% of what's actually in the class. So the class would give you a major, major advantage if you're struggling. If you're not struggling with your studies and you're happy with how your studies are going and you don't want to accelerate them, that's basically what the GMAT strategy class is. It's a study accelerator. It'll help you reach your goal faster and with with less effort. If you don't want that or that's not appealing, then just don't worry about it, okay? Um, But chances are that checking out the video on my website will help you out anyway. So in the meantime, this is a weekly show, so please subscribe, and as always, stay positive and stay consistent with your studies, everybody. I know this is a difficult time in the world for many of us, and uh, I just hopefully am doing a little bit, and in some cases a lot, to just ease your struggles with the GMAT, which is my main goal here, okay? So reach out if you have questions. Otherwise, I'll talk to you all soon.